You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and uh, welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. Um, We've got a great guest today to talk about one of my favourite topics. There are two things that uh, as a financial analyst I love to talk about. One's revenue and the other's cost. And today, I think we can be talking about cost and how it's related to volume with our distinguished guest. Absolutely. Um, It's time to introduce uh, Paul Graham from the CSIRO and the lead author of the latest version of the annual GenCost report. Um, Thanks for joining this podcast, Paul. Hi. Look, um, this is an annual... um, How long has it been going, actually, Paul? I was asked that question the other day and I wasn't able to answer. I thought it was about four or five years, but I might be quite wrong. We we started as of the first GenCost report in 2018. Um, we'd been doing some of something similar in a more ad hoc basis for longer than that. But yeah, 2018 was the first year we joined up with AMO to make this a regular annual report. And give us the background about why you chose to do that. What what was um what was the motivation? We'd we'd sort of it goes right back to 2010 when the the federal government did this big exercise with um, the Electric Power Research Institute where they. Did a sort of some a sort of a cost set that everyone was going to use, and at the time we were still doing climate policy modelling, and um, we liked some of what they did, but we really disliked some other things that they did. Um, so they had they did some good stakeholder engagement. It was the first time they went around and asked all the energy industry, "What do you think about these cost numbers?" Um, but they just did a terrible job of capturing the fast-moving cost reductions that the industry was seeing. Um, we ended up, and they weren't really using a learning approach, which was state-of-the-art at the time and we thought they should be using. So we started building our own model at that point. And then back then when we went to sort of 2012, 2013, there was another process which the government started up again where we sort of put up our hand and said, look, what well, we think we can do a great job of the projections, and we did. Uh, we did get involved in that. And um, then in 2015, there was something called the that the CO2CRC did, uh, Australian Power Generation Technology Report. Um, And then after 2015, there was really nothing. And the industry was, we started in 2017, we published our own report just because there was nothing else that anyone was publishing on costs. People were just making up their own numbers. Um, We felt there was a need to sort of show people the numbers that we were using in our work um, and make them available to other people. And then we started having the conversation with government and AMO about, you know, why don't we do this together? We'll get together a set that um, um, we can bring in and have stakeholders take a look at because we, we, can, we weren't doing that for ourselves. We were just producing our own numbers but not asking stakeholders about it. So we wanted to ask stakeholders about it, have an open process produce the numbers, update them annually so people could rely on it and have it know that it was coming. Um, and yeah, it just seemed to work that way. It fits in with the fact that AMO need those numbers every year anyway. So 
um, we, were, we were happy to get on board. And what does it say then about, um, we know that the latest one um, talks about wind and solar being clearly the cheapest um, energy source, even with storage and transmission. We'll get that back to that later. But has that been the case since you launched this project in 2018 or has there been an evolution? Um, there's been a bit of an evolution because we weren't really sure in 2018 how to add in the integration costs of renewables. Uh, we initially did it in a sort of a very simplistic way. All we did is we say, well, let's build a, let's see what the cost is of building renewables and then we'll just, we'll just add on, we'll add on either two or six hours of storage and see what that looks like. Um, and it was, you know, it was costly, but not, not too costly. So it seemed okay. Um, uh, we didn't, at that point, we weren't really certain enough to say that that, um, that meant that renewables were going to be cost effective, but we had no idea that they might be. Um, so we started thinking about what's a better way to do this. And then we came up with an approach which we implemented in 2019, 20 uh, version of the report where we did sort of a full blown modeling approach where we have a reference case system. And then we say, what would it cost to increase the share of renewables to either 60, 70, 80 or 90%? What would the additional cost be? And then we, and then we added that in. Um, and it actually turned out to be a lot less than the costs that we found in 2018, which were where we just built a storage project for every renewable project what the modeling found was it's actually much less than that. And that's when we started realizing that actually it looks like renewables are actually the with, the, with with the integration costs are actually the cheapest thing you can build. Yeah, so I mean, I don't think that comes as any surprise to me uh, personally. Uh, uh, and uh, I mean, um, as as if I break it, how should I put this? If, if leaving out the transmission side, but if we if we take the numbers in this report for wind and solar, which are, I think work to a levelised cost of en energy of, uh, that, that is the, the, the price that the um, producer needs to receive over the lifetime of the asset in order to uh, get a return, that comes to what's the first number you in real terms that you would that you would say for that combined cost? Uh, com combining, sorry, wind and solar. Yeah, yeah, it's a, probably fifty dollars a megawatt hour comes to my head. That's what comes to my head as well. Yeah. And then if we added in a firming cost, what would the total be? Yeah, that's right. We we tend to add in about uh, I think fifteen to thirty dollars depending on a megawatt hour, depending on what your level of renewables you want to add to the system. So because I'm an optimist, I might say sixty to eighty dollars, but and, and I probably want to think about sixty-five. Because that's what you need to have a globally competitive electricity price, doesn't it? I mean, uh, one of the things I we were talking about before this uh, started uh, is that um, uh, you know there's what did you say 130 people or something in the in the CSIRO Energy Division, and 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 you do look at global energy uh, demand at least and mixes. Do you also look at global energy costs? We have started looking at that. We're really uh, starting to think about if we're going to have these big new industries based on um, clean energy, we want to be confident that we can actually be at the low end of the cost curve. So we, that's something we've definitely started looking at. And, and it looks like we do have, we will have something like that sort of position. 
that's what I've been thinking about, Paul, for four or five years. My target uh, for, for a decarbonised uh, electricity and a decarbonised Australia is always to have Tomago aluminium smelter, as my example customer, still being able to undercut uh, China. Uh, or anywhere else. That, that, that's how I think about it. Now, I just wanted to ask a couple of kind of nerdy, not very nerdy, but tiny nerdy questions, like about the cost of capital. I notice when you're doing this that you use the same cost of capital for all the technologies. Is, uh, is that right? Yeah, we do. We think, I mean, although we don't, we know, you know, theoretically, that's probably not right because everything has its own risk specific to that project. We're sort of trying not to skew the results, so we just we do keep it the same for everyone. And um, can I ask, uh, how do you think about that cost of capital? Is it like the um, um, uh, in, in, is it a real number or a nominal? It, it's no a, what it's is a real number. Actually... Yeah, it's a real number. So what were you using for this this run of the model? Six percent. Six percent. Thank you very much. And is it fair, is it fair to say that if you raise the cost of capital, it will probably or it will have uh, a bigger impact on wind and solar than it would on thermal technologies because because the future value of uh, say coal and gas depends in the levelised cost depends on the annual uh, coal and gas cost, uh, which is uh, discounted when the uh, cost of capital increases, but that doesn't happen for wind and solar. That's correct, yeah. Um, wind and solar are fundamentally capital projects, uh, and so their whole cost is mostly affected by that um, that cost of capital. Yeah, and and uh, and then I'll leave this uh, uh, alone. Uh, these these sorts of bits and pieces. Well, actually, I think that that's the main thing. I oh, the other thing was just the overnight capital cost. You you I mean, for instance, uh, if I just come back to renewable technologies and 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 firming, like a battery can be built uh, hopefully within twelve months, but I would argue that a pumped hydro project might take a lot longer between the time that you first between to to actually build it. Do you ref do you reflect that, or do your numbers like overnight capital costs? No, we do include sort of interest loss during construction and that type of thing. Uh, we don't do it to the sort of degree of, you know, when you're actually a project manager building these things, you work that out almost to the month and day. Uh, but we we do take into it account um, using a fairly rough formula. I'm just wondering if we can just get back to some of the broader themes, um, Paul. So the overall message from your, uh, your, your, your latest GenCost report is that basically wind and solar, including the integration costs, which is storage and transmission, are still vastly cheaper than all competing technologies, even up to the level of 90%. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Mm. That's That's and basically the message there is that whether you're chasing lower emissions or whatever, the fact that we probably have to replace a lot of the capacity, aging capacity in the grid anyway, then the obvious choice would be to go renewables because it's cheaper, cleaner, and probably can be deployed much faster. Yeah, that's right. It's 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 the least cost thing to do, even if you don't have any climate policy ambitions. But because we do have climate policy ambitions, uh, it is useful to have um, things like renewable targets and so forth, because um, 
it's the cheapest new thing to build, um, but you also have to have a mechanism for, you know, if you want the faster you want to get and the faster you want to reduce emissions and increase the renewable share, you might need something to help other things close down. Uh, and that's why we wouldn't say, for example, that even though renewables are the cheapest new build technology, we wouldn't say that therefore you don't need any policy. Um, you do need policy because you might want something uh, to make room for those renewables. You might want the existing, uh, something to encourage the existing plant to close down faster than they might if they're just following their normal end of life trajectory. Mm. So explain to me what happens then, you get to 90% renewables and you can sort of comfortably, it seems, do that with wind and solar, which I guess, you know, if you go back a few years, a lot of people would sort of laugh you out of the room if you even sort of suggested that idea. But your work says that you can do that with 90% wind and solar. Um, you need a certain amount of storage. We'll, we'll get to the amount of storage that you need later on. But you sort of suggesting that the last 10% is in, in like towards a 100% renewables grid would not come necessarily from wind and solar and, and storage. It would need to come from other sorts of renewables such as hydro biomass or maybe it's renewable or um, renewable um, or green hydrogen or whatever can you explain what your thinking is there yeah we didn't want to the main reason we, we didn't want to push it past 90 percent was we we sort of played around with that and we did you know 100 percent solar and wind and we thought this is just silly we're forcing we're shutting down hydro just to make room for solar and wind we wouldn't do that in reality of course um, you know, we need to go to 90% and maybe we could need to go a bit over 90% solar and wind, uh, but you wouldn't go to the point of pushing out hydro generation, which is other renewable generation, and you'd keep the existing biomass. There's a lot of biomass, you know, the bagasse sugarcane industry in, in Queensland, that's renewable electricity as well. So it'll be something like 90% or a bit over 90, but there's no need to go to 100 because we've got other renewables which can contribute. And I'm just wondering if I could ask, ask about the storage too, because um, in our discussions um, when you released the report, you pointed out that you, CSIRO, um, um, in conjunction with AEMO, have, have made a special part of the report to explain your thinking about storage. And, and basically the overarching idea of that was that you don't need as much storage as a lot of people say. And I remember going back to the negotiations and the discussions over the National Energy Guarantee, and there was moments in time when people like Josh Frydenberg were suggesting that every new wind and solar farm um, should match um, kilo, each kilowatt of the capacity with the kilowatt of storage. Now that did not idea got laughed out of the room pretty quickly, thankfully. But what you're saying is that there's much less storage needed than thought. Can you explain what the rationale is there? Yeah, look, I, I look. I don't really blame people for heading down that path. I mean, when we did our first report in 2018, we, we essentially made the same um, mental mistake, I guess, that everyone else did because we we just built. Um, a storage plant for every renewable plant just to see what that would cost. Um, but it, does, it doesn't take more than a few minutes of thought to realise that doesn't make sense because um, you think about a 90% solar and wind system, um, you're probably going to have to build renewable capacity that'll be sort of two or three times the size of peak demand. Um, and so if you then built storage to that height, I mean, you'd have you know, uh, 50 percent, maybe two thirds of storage that you'd never actually use at, at peak demand, which would be, you know, a strange thing to do. So when you're building renewables, they are, you need a lot higher kilowatt capacity because of their low capacity factor, far exceeding peak demand. 
And so when you need the storage and uh, you know you need uh, something else to generate and provide power when renewable energy isn't there, you're never going to need any more than whatever the capacity is to meet peak demand. That's one thing. Um, so that kind of all immediately kind of at least halves the amount of storage you think you need. Um, and then I started thinking about peak demand and thinking, well, most of the states are summer peaking. And this is, you know, if we're going to have a lot of solar in the system, that, that traditional summer peaking day, the storages are going to be very full. We're probably going to be spilling solar after we've filled all the storages. Um, it's not going to be a particularly challenging day for the system to, to, to um, meet peak demand um, once you've got a sort of a solar and storage based system. But um, the more difficult thing is probably those, you know, the, the sort of winter doldrums type days um, uh, with low solar, low wind uh, production. That's going to be more challenging because maybe some of your storages aren't filling up um, as much. Um, and we looked at peak demand on those types of days and they're actually more like um, a half to you know two thirds of the actual traditional uh, peak demand day. So that gives you another peg uh, to sort of understand well what does this, what does your backup capacity really have to meet in terms of capacity? And again, that's just a fraction of the actual renewable capacity. So you know to, whether it's peak demand or a or a winter doldrums sort of day, um, it turns out that the, the the storage you need to build and maybe you've still got some peaking capacity as well, um, and we will have for quite a while. That is just we find it's generally of the order of sort of um, uh, a fifth to a third uh, um, storage per kilowatt of renewables. And then on top of that, some, maybe some peaking capacity. And that covers any type of situation that the grid's likely to face. Um, so, well, you can meet, length, so you can meet demand what, reliably. What about the length of storage though? Surely in the winter months, um, because you're struggling maybe to fill the storage, be they sort of pumped hydro or batteries, will you need um, longer um, storage capacity um, than uh, the, the, just, you know, the rated capacity of the storage, but also just a lot longer length of storage to fill that, fill, fill that gap, the, the Dunkelflaut as the Germans call it? Yeah, well, in 2030, we've still got enough peaking capacity that um, we're mainly trying to meet it with existing peakers who just you know run uh, with a bit of storage on top, whatever storage is available, and that seems to be enough. Um, we do find though, as we go from 60% renewables up to 90% renewables, the modeling, you know, the system wants to build longer duration. That's absolutely right. More longer duration, because if you're going to get to 90% renewables, you've probably closed a lot more of your existing dispatchable capacity. And so you need to build more, more long duration storage. So that's absolutely correct. I think, uh, I think, Paul, um, that's sort of similar to the results of the ISP in some ways. And I, we've all, I personally think that uh, all the problems are going to be in winter uh, going forward, uh, or most of them. And we've already seen that for the last three years, at least in terms of price, and it's what we're seeing now. I just wondered, you have actually done a bit of a sort of comparison with your results with those at the ISP. 
what, what what's your sort of thinking about uh, about them both and where they meet? Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of similarities in how they, you know, meet this problem. So a lot of most of the um, ISP scenarios uh, with the stronger climate ambition do get up over 90 percent uh, renewables, and they and they meet that uh, reliability challenge with a combination of uh, storage at different lengths and peaking plant. Um, so that that's really the answer. It's a combination of storage and peaking plant. Uh, you'll see, for example, in step change, the ISP, uh, the peaking plant are kind of stable and even falling for a little bit, but then they start rebuilding peaking plant um, into the late 2030s, 2040s. Um, so it's essentially the same solution uh, to the same problem. Uh, if we're going to have a high variable renewable system, we need a combination of storage and peaking plant to um, to back it up. And we do have some options in the peaking plant. Um, we, we can use natural gas, obviously. And um, that has emissions associated with it, but maybe that's okay if you're still getting to sort of, you know, high 90s percent renewables, maybe having a few emissions left in the electricity sector is okay. Um, but if you wanted to avoid that, you could look at hydrogen peakers and um, we have started to include those in GenCOS in the last couple of years. Um, and they start, I, I started including them in our levelized cost of electricity diagram, uh, where we kind of rank some of those peaking technologies. And the, the hydrogen peakers initially are a fair bit more expensive than gas peakers, but over time they start to kind of come down and start to look similar in cost and you know obviously there's a bit of uncertainty in that the future cost of hydrogen but um, you know there is that option there if we want to get to a full 100% zero emission electricity system. Absolutely and the other thing about it all is in just coming back to the cost and, and I hate being a bit nerdy but uh, you know inflation makes costs go up in nominal terms and learning rates uh, that is the way the unit cost reduces as you increase volume, particularly the installed rate, that goes down. So in real terms, do you think the electricity cost in Australia will go up or down over time as we increase the renewable penetration? Look, if uh, if we'd been standing in the middle of COVID a couple of years ago at $40 a megawatt hour, I'd say, look, it has to go up. Um, but, you know, standing where we are now in a um, energy global energy crisis world uh, with much higher prices, I'd say things will go down. But we're, the, thing, the thing that we do know from our, um, our modelling is it looks like we can have uh, mostly variable renewable energy system in the future for something like um, 65 to $80 a megawatt hour as a long run uh, cost that the uh, system will need to recover um, and um, at the moment that looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah whereas if you were to, uh, I mean if I look at uh, China for instance or somewhere I can't see their uh, coal-based system being anything le much less than you know Aussie a hundred dollars uh, even though uh, or, or, or or something like that uh, really I mean it just comes back to the main central point I was trying to make that um, 
our renewable resources are, are bountiful. The land on which they go, uh, notwithstanding social licence, is uh, uh, low cost by global standards. Um, and, and so there's no reason why we can't have a globally competitive energy economy built on wind and solar. And I suppose I should also ask about uh, nuclear, which gets a good run every time people want to talk about new systems. Uh, how do you see nuclear as fitting in, if at all, in Australia? Uh, and, you know, what about these sort of small load-following nuclear reactors that exist in people's minds, even if not in the real world? Yeah, we've pretty had a pretty long dialogue with the, um, I guess, nuclear proponents in Australia over the last four years of running GenCost. And we've, it, it's been a case of slowly, you know, coming to terms with the different point of views that we're coming from. Um, we're trying to we're trying to present data on a common costing basis, and ideally, we want to start from a a current cost of capital that is backed up by pretty good evidence of um, you know things that have been deployed. Um, uh, because you know we we've all, we've been in situations, and I think we can all relate to it, where a vendor says, "Oh, this will cost this amount," and then when it gets built, it, you know it can be if it's a new thing and hasn't been done before, it costs considerably more. Um, so we're not... I've never been in a situation, Paul, where somebody told me that investment was going to cost X and it actually turned out to be X or less. That's never happened, but I suppose it must do one time or another. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of the nuclear costs that get thrown around are really sort of vendor costs for things that haven't been built in Australia before and often haven't necessarily been built anywhere in the world. Um, so we, we, you know, have to be a little bit sceptical of that. Um, we, we've been able to find studies uh, which can look back at costs and they can add, you know, they can also, they've got a process for adding first of a kind costs and we're sort of a bit more trusting. And we can look at literature that, literature that does kind of more of a meta search for um, lots of different views rather than just vendor views. Um, so we, we've, we've sort of landed on a, a number that's higher than people would like. Um, and we've, but we've also agreed that um, it, it is a bit of a theoretical number, whatever you use, because there isn't any projects you can look at really um, yep. in Australia and around the world. The project that everyone's kind of looking to, the, uh, the uh, I think it's the New Scale project in um, the US, won't be complete until 2029 in terms of its first uh, operation. And so we're probably, you know, we're not really... Still probably beats Snowy too. That's a bad yeah. joke. Sorry, keep going. So, yeah, we won't, we won't really know for sure what things are going to cost until later this decade. Um, so we've, we just made the decision that we're not going to report any costs for this decade. We start costs from 2030. And um, we, we do have a bit of a bet each way um, in that we start with either a low cost or a high cost, depending on how that... Uh, the, those global projects develop, and we, you know, we allow for the fact that they may uh, they may be successful or they may not. But even if they are, uh, the the lower end of that cost doesn't look so good uh, for a number of reasons. No. Um, no, let, let, let's so so nuclear doesn't get a run. Sorry, no. sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and that brings me to offshore wind. Uh, uh, where you see costs coming out of these UK auctions that are kind of reported in 2012 dollars, which is not, you know, 2025 or something like that. 
In your modelling, uh, even with the cost estimates that you've used for offshore wind, does it end up being built in your model, in the CSIRO model? Uh, it gets built around the world, but not in Australia. Um, we've got too many good quality onshore wind resources, uh, which are lower cost. Um, but around the world, uh, that situation flips on its head where uh, most of the wind resources for other regions are located offshore. And so they, they naturally want to use those. Um, yeah, we're, we're just a bit too blessed, I think, with on, onshore resources, uh, and we'll use those up first. I can certainly see a scenario in Australia, though, where we, you know, if we do get into a situation where we, we take advantage of this, uh, these growing clean energy industries, maybe it's hydrogen exports, maybe it's green steel, maybe it's just running aluminium on uh, clean energy. But if we end up using big volumes of onshore resources, we could get to a point where we say, it's time to tap some of that offshore wind. Yeah, I'll hand back to Giles. I guess I would make the point for the offshore wind people that they would say that the kind of cost estimates that you are doing don't factor in the kind of social licence transmission and other social licence issues that are involved with building big onshore renewable energy zones, particularly in Victoria, where the land use is more contested. But Giles... That's true, yep. Back to you, Giles. Yeah, we'll just take a, a short break um, for the moment. JetCharge is the largest EV charging infrastructure company in Australia. Operating nationwide, JetCharge has spent the last decade providing hassle-free EV charging services to thousands of businesses and EV drivers. JetCharge also specialises in helping maximise your use of renewable energy and the leaders in vehicle-to-grid integrated solutions. From home charger installations to the largest EV charging projects in Australia, JetCharge is paving the way for an electric future together. We're back with um, Paul Graham from the CSIRO. Paul, just on uh, offshore wind, um, Victoria actually has a mandate for nine gigawatts um, by 2040. So do those sort of things factor into your equation or are you, your modelling just sort of really just looks at the costs and, uh, and things like that? We, we hadn't at this stage put that in, um, and, but we, we do need to think about it. And I know, I think AMO was struggling a bit with how much they put that in as a definite... Um, a definite project, committed projects, or whether they, I think in the end they went with a sensitivity case. Um, but you know, as that firms up, we'd probably we'd look to put that in, depending on how it goes. Another thing I'd like to sort of talk about is hydrogen, because um, there's two things that I'm sort of fascinated by this sort of hydrogen peaker plant, because I mean, in, in, in some ways, sort of using wind and solar to sort of uh, sort of make hydrogen, and then sort of using a gas. Uh, using a peaking generator, um, some people say it doesn't make sense, but maybe it does with with gas prices going up. But also, your report talks about the sort of the falling cost of um, hydrogen electrolyzers. So, where, what are you seeing in that? Yeah, look, we we're, we're excited every year to see the new updates of the engineering costs that, uh, in this case, Oricon uh, delivered for AMO uh, on our behalf, and um, they they come down quite a lot. Um, and that's what we want to see uh, in technologies like electrolyzers because we need them to, to to really make a difference in the future. We need them to sort of come down 
much like solar and batteries have, we need them to come down, you know, to halve or even further than that uh, to get them to the point where they'll be a much easier proposition to, to transition to. So yeah, we love to see big cost reductions like that in emerging technologies. And does that point to sort of a um, what AUMO described as their sort of hydrogen superpower scenario? Because I mean, so much has been talked about hydrogen as a technology, and you've got people like Andrew Forrest going around saying, oh, "I'm going to make 15 million tonnes a year of green hydrogen by 2030." A lot of people say that's probably not going to happen, but you never know. Um, some people think 17% of I think of the 1,500 stakeholders consulted by EMOS think that the hydrogen superpower scenario is already the most likely in Australia. So they do believe that hydrogen costs are coming down. Um, does your research or what you're seeing in the market sort of lend weight to that view that um, we will be picking up hydrogen quite rapidly? Um, and, and who knows how we're exactly we're going to use it, but then that sort of lends credence to the idea that we might be shifting pretty rapidly to what AUMO described as the hydrogen superpower scenario. Yeah, look, I think I think there's some things where it, it would be pretty expensive to shift to shift quickly from using um, natural gas based, you know, steam methane reforming hydrogen to electrolysis hydrogen because if gas is a huge part of the cost of that product, like like I'm thinking of fertilizers or explosives, I think that just makes that product too expensive and you'll have trouble selling it in the current environment. Um, but it's but there are other applications where that aren't so price sensitive. Um, so um, when you're using hydrogen in, in green steel, it, it feels like that's not a big there's, there's so many other cost components to making steel that that's not such a big increase for the cost of steel. Um, there's also countries that just don't have and just aren't blessed with the sorts of um, uh, energy resources that places like Australia has. So countries like Japan really struggle to find cheap low emission energy sources. They don't have the land mass. Um, so they're looking at hydrogen as a really plausible uh, low emission fuel for themselves in the way that we wouldn't ever consider you know will you will use hydrogen as a peaking uh, as an expensive peaking fuel uh, but we'd never think of using it for sort of baseload electricity but in somewhere like japan where you don't have any choices for low emission energy it, it, it's a much uh, more plausible prospect so I see those early low-hanging fruit things, I think they actually will happen. Uh, and then how much further it goes beyond that, it gets very hard to predict. But you know, if, if it does happen, I think Australia has got a shot at um, being one of the major suppliers. Yeah, look, I, I, I think we've um, probably uh, move, moving, moving along. My own view is countries like Japan will use a mix of offshore wind and, and hydrogen as they decarbonise, and they'll have to do that in, uh, um, Giles, what else is the news of the week uh, this week that we need? To oh, I, I've got a couple more questions for Paul. Actually, oh, excuse, um, me. Paul, excuse me. Yeah, um, just with the um, just with you know, you've been saying for a couple more couple of years now that sort of wind and solar are the cheapest, even integrated wind and solar, and you've reinforced that this time. Um, you know, sort of mapping quite in detail: 90 percent wind and solar share of the grid. How is it? Um, do, do people accept that now? I mean, how much sort of knockback and resistance are you getting that from sort of various quarters? Yeah, look, it's it's sort of reasonably well accepted, but um, 
I, I think there is, uh, there's a couple of submissions that where I noticed that, um, um, for example, some people, I think I got one, one submission sort of said, well, we think your 2018 numbers were more realistic. Um, uh, this new, not sure about this new method. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we did insert an extra sort of uh, piece in this latest report where we tried to, you know, draw out a longer explanation for why we think we've got the level of storage right. Um, because that's that, that's always been the thing, isn't it? I mean, people sort of say, oh, yeah, well, wind and solar might be cheaper. Yeah, but, but by the time you've got to back them up and do all this and other things, then they get blown out of the water. Yeah, but, you know, we recognise we've been on the same journey ourselves and, um, you know, models are all sort of black boxes and you, you might, if you want other people to believe the results, you have to... You have to spend a bit of time explaining them. People won't just believe things because you said so. And so we're we're happy to sort of take the feedback and you know try to do better explaining things. Yeah. And do you have a look at carbon capture and storage because that's the other sort of technology uh, that's often sort of touted in sort of um, discussions in Australia. Um, any, any quick views on that? Yeah. Look, it's been through a real roller coaster over the last decade. I, you know, it got off to a bad start because CCS was really targeted at, you know, an answer for the black coal industry, um, and it just turned out to be too. That's just a too expensive an application for that technology. That's there's so much. It's so much trouble cleaning. You know, trying to clean up uh, flue gas and then separate CO2. It, it just gets too expensive. So. Uh, but I think it's making a comeback because people have realised it does. We do have to do something about these other industry sectors, which do need uh, some solutions where maybe there isn't an option to electrify uh, or maybe hydrogen is too expensive. You might want to use CCS where you've got a relatively clean stream of CO2. Uh, it's actually reasonably cost effective. So I think I think CCS will have its place uh, around the world and in Australia being applied in places where there, you know, there isn't those other options uh, to, to reduce and just emissions. One final question. Yeah, and just one final question on the, on, on the GenCost report. You make the point too, because you've got these various scenarios, um, you've got sort of, um, sort of um, um, uh, current policies and you've got sort of um, net zero emissions by 2050, which is aligned with say 1.5 degrees, net zero emissions after 2050, which is aligned with 1.7 degrees current policies is aligned with 2.6 degrees. Can you explain your thinking, because you also make the point that um, that if you're really going to go quickly and really going to sort of try and make the Paris target 1.5 degrees, then you're going to need rapid deployment because the grid's got to decarbonise first. And basically, in that scenario, wind and solar become even more dominant more quickly because basically the speed with which you need to act basically pushes everything else aside. Yeah, that's right. These these technologies like um, nuclear SMR and offshore wind and um, solar thermal and tidal and ocean, and they all need time and deployment and trials and demonstrations to get them down the cost curve. Uh, and if if we have a really strong climate ambition, um, we'll find that we're trying to deploy things, solar and wind so fast that we just won't have time to work on these other technologies. Um, take Australia, for example, there's, I mean, the, the, the Commonwealth um, ambition here is to have 80% renewables by 2030. Um, that's, that's before we even get the first price signal from nuclear SMR out of the US. Um, 
So it's kind of all over then, isn't it? At that point, if you've already, if 80% of your system's still already running on solar and wind, then it's a bit late to bring in other technologies at that point. Yeah. yeah. Look, thank you very much, Paul. Um, we'll, we'll get back to you in a minute. Um, David, um, just briefly recapping, as you suggested a while ago, um, some of the other um, things around the market. Um, just a couple of big conferences happening. We've got um, Albanese and Bowen hosting uh, the IEA and uh, the US Energy Minister and the Indonesian one. Um, really sort of um, more sort of big talking points, I think, but it, it kind of just does sort of talk about a government and a country that's now keen to embrace the renewable energy transition, even if their targets probably remain a bit low. Uh, that's right, Giles. And we had an ATSA conference where uh, a number of people spoke uh, who were leaders in the uh, energy industry in Australia, all basically supporting the themes that uh, Paul uh, has outlined today and which were also outlined by AEMO and the ISP. But, you know, as we all recognise, it's just not happening quickly enough in terms of the new capacity being built. I guess I'm always impatient to see more. Uh, we saw a big battery announced uh, uh, in Queensland uh, 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 as well. Uh, we, but we also seen the casualties continuing to come through with Energy Australia's credit rating being uh, downloaded, uh, downrated two notches to triple B minus. That's the lowest grade that you can get to and still be uh, have a proper credit rating. Um, and we're still seeing, at the moment, very, very high electricity prices every single day uh, causing pain. Uh, and el electricity retailers putting up prices, uh, as I might say I originally suggested, the bigger ones, about 20%. And I'm sure they'd put them up more if they, if they could. Yes, it's, it's a, um, this um, energy crisis, I think, is going to continue for some time. It's going to be, as we sort of discussed with Chris Bowen in last week's podcast, um, um, we never really got an answer to that question, actually, is that how long they can actually hang on to the tails of blaming the, uh, or, being or being able to blame um, the previous government for, for, for no action. I mean, that sort of will remain true, but not necessarily in the minds of people having to pay very high electricity bills. Um, I might say, Giles, I, you know, I, it was a great uh, podcast with Chris last week and, and it's fantastic to hear uh, the targets that they talk about. But I'm not sure it's enough to say that, you know, we were elected on this such and such promise and that's all we have to have to do when, in fact, the climate keeps moving no matter what premise you were actually elected on and the world keeps moving and we do need enough policy. You know, at the moment, we've still got transmission and connection issues and we're st uh, we, I think we saw Ashiona today, uh, which is building the McIntyre wind farm, uh, saying that they'd like to do three or four of those. Uh, but, you know, we, have we got an, the actual policy uh, in place to, to achieve, the, to, to get it built? 80% by renewables by 2030 still seems uh, a very big ask from where we sit at, you know, a bit over 20%, 25%, maybe even 30% if you count hydro here in 2022. Well, that's actually right. And that will be a topic of the Energy Next conference, um, which is another conference happening in Sydney next week. Anyway, we'll look. Um, we'll be following up with another podcast next week. Um, Paul Graham from CSI Road, thanks very much for joining us, and congratulations on uh, on, on the latest GenCost report. Hey, you're welcome. And thank you, David, um, for your um, weekly contribution, and um, thanks also to um, all our listeners for tuning in, and of course also to our sponsors. Um, we thank you very much. Um, Pylon Evergen.
and for your continuing support. And of course, Jet Charge, um, our new mid podcast sponsor. We'll be back again next week with another exciting podcast for Energy Insiders. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.